Today on Government Matters, for a week, a Chinese spy balloon traveled across the U.S. until it was shot down off the coast of South Carolina. The second in charge at U.S. Northern Command joins us to discuss the response. Then, military services are hoping to hit their recruiting goals this year, but experts say the recruitment pool is changing, and the military needs to tap into that. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. U.S. Northern Command tracked and eventually shot down a Chinese spy balloon after it traveled across the country. Lieutenant General A.C. Roper is the deputy commander. He joins us from NORTHCOM's headquarters at Peterson Space Force Base in Colorado Springs. General, nice to have you on the program. Welcome. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you for this opportunity. So can you talk about that process of um, taking down the balloon with the F-22? What was that like? Why was the Sidewinder the missile that was selected for that? Well, let me first say that we're extremely proud of all of our personnel that were involved in this operation. It was truly an interagency affair. And so the coordination and collaboration to really have a successful uh, shoot down of this balloon really speaks to the professionalism of our personnel and the training that they conduct every day. So I would just simply say as the balloon transited across uh, the United States, there was a lot of planning. Uh, two of the things that we really pride ourselves on is creating decision space and articulating risk, which means that we really provide options. But when the decision was made to, to conduct the, the shoot down, everything worked according to plan. And can you tell me a little bit about why the decision was made not to shoot it down over the United States? What were the risks involved with that? Well, it's really a, a, a risk reward scenario. We recognize the fact that uh, we have some intelligence gaps uh, regarding these balloons. And so as the discussions and planning was proceeding uh, as the balloon transited, uh, we had to take that into consideration. Uh, the risk of, of them collecting intelligence, so we did everything we could in coordination with the fellow combatant commands, et cetera, to really prevent uh, intelligence collection. But we also wanted to maximize the opportunity to really observe uh, this balloon and, and really try to close that intelligence gap that has persisted. And so it was, it was really key for us to maximize the opportunities, ensure safety, but also execute our action at the time and place of our choosing, which was off the, uh, off the coast there in the Atlantic Ocean. And you mentioned uh, intelligence gaps. Are you confident that those gaps have been addressed um, in case there are future spy balloons? Well, we're sure that uh, we will have some gains, uh, some tremendous gains uh, from the exploitation of this balloon and its components. And so the intelligence community is working that now, and there's a lot more to come on that because they're really just getting started as we continue uh, to conduct the recovery operations. And how is that recovery operation going? How long do you expect it to go on? Um, and are you expecting to be able to get everything, all the debris? Well, I would say we have some true professionals out there with our U.S. Navy component, our Navy North, NAV North is, is, is how it's referred to, but is also in partnership with the United States Coast Guard. 
uh, we have the FBI embedded with us. And so and so there's work being done right now to, to recover. We have several vessels out there that have mapped the seabed. Uh, we have a good sense of the debris field, but now it's just a matter of working within the, the constraints of the weather, uh, the waves and everything that they have to really deal with to successfully retrieve bring that debris and those components up to the surface and so that uh, they can all be exploited. And the commander of NORTHCOM is also the commander of NORAD. So can you tell me what the difference is in the mission? How do the two work together in a situation like the, the Chinese spy balloon? Well, it's two commands, but they're really inseparable. So you're, you're correct. General Glenn Van Herc is the commander of both. So let me just speak for a little bit regarding their mission set. So NORAD, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, is, is really responsible for three missions, aerospace warning, aerospace control, and maritime warning. And so in that command, which is bilateral in partnership with, with uh, the, the government of Canada, uh, the combatant commander here has two bosses. He reports through the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, through the Secretary of Defense, to the president. But on the Canadian side, he reports through the chief of their defense staff and their minister of national defense to their prime minister. So that's the NORAD piece of it. But then U.S. Northern Command, which is one of our 11 combatant commands, is responsible for homeland defense. That's the number one no-fail mission is also responsible for defense support to civil authorities. In other words, think about the federal response to natural disasters. And then thirdly, it's responsible for security cooperation in partnership, not just with Canada, but with the, the, the Mexico and with the Bahamas. And so those two mission sets, those two commands have to work hand in hand. So for example, if a missile was launched, uh, it would be the NORAD hat. How, how do we provide uh, threat warning, uh, attack assessment to really get ahead of that threat? If it's engageable, it's Homeland Defense, which means it's now the NORTHCOM hat. And if there's a, a hit or something that, that affects the, the nation, it would be the NORTHCOM hat in regards to defense support to civil authorities and consequence management. So in any scenario, the combatant commander here may have to switch hats, which also means he's switching authorities. And obviously, Department of Homeland Security also has as its mission defense of the homeland. Where is that line where your role ends and their role starts? So DHS, Department of Homeland Security, they're great partners of ours. But also, let me also mention uh, FEMA, uh, CISA. There's all types of interagency partners here in the homeland because of the authorities and the responsibilities that we have to work closely with. So for example, let me just mention the Southwest border. That's the Department of Homeland Security mission, but Department of Defense through U.S. Northern Command is providing soldiers in a Title X federal status to support uh, CBP and DHS. And so at times there's this tight uh, coordination and collaboration where we're supporting their mission set. And that's what you see on the Southwest border. Uh, some may argue differently, but the number, uh, let me just stress that that's a DHS mission and we're there due to a request for assistance. All right, General, stand by and we'll continue our conversation. We'll be right back with more of our interview with Lieutenant General A.C. Roper, the Deputy Commander of U.S. Northern Command.
I'm back with Lieutenant General A.C. Roper. He's the Deputy Commander of U.S. Northern Command. General, the U.S.'s two primary adversaries are China and Russia. Which of those do you think has the greatest capability to threaten the homeland? Well, I would say, as we speak today, that would be Russia. Our national defense strategy refers to Russia as the acute threat. And of course, it refers to China as the pacing threat. So we would say that China is roughly a five to seven years behind Russia in regards to threats to the homeland. I think it's interesting to note that uh, as we look at the war in Ukraine, uh, quite often people think about Russia's uh, performance on the battlefield from a land domain perspective. They're looking at the army, and it has been challenged. But I would say to you that uh, in those other domains, when we talk about Russia's capability and capacity in space uh, with air, uh, with the their Navy, their long-range aviation, they have uh, uh, some amazing, uh, challenging capabilities out there that can hold the homeland at risk uh, when we think about their submarine capacity and capability and what they're doing in the Arctic. Uh, it has caused us some concerns. I want to ask you about the Arctic because more than half of your area of operation is the Arctic. So how has that strategic environment changed in recent years? Well, there was a time there wasn't much focus on the Arctic because it was basically uh, inaccessible, uh, unattackable. But now with the, the climate change, the seabeds rising, ice melting, you can transit there uh, much more uh, frequently now than in the past. And so in U.S. Northern Command, about 52% of our area of responsibility is the Arctic. And the combatant commander here is the dedicated, designated uh, DOD Arctic advocate. And so for us and what we see Russia doing there, we are extremely concerned. We know we have to have forces that are organized, trained, and equipped to operate in the Arctic, which is a very challenging environment. And so we're working at that. We have a lot of work to do to ensure that we're postured, uh, that we have the forces that can execute the mission set there. And that's a whole of government type of uh, operation. And I understand that there's a the Ted Stevens Center uh, and that you're growing your presence in, in the region. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes, the, the Ted Stevens Center is really a, a game changer for us. Uh, so, so their mission set is really to, to, to advocate, to, to collaborate, to, to study and research uh, this entire environment. And so uh, the, the partnership we have with them is absolutely critical uh, as we go forward. But let me also speak about DOD uh, at large because our services have a critical mission there. You know, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, really ensuring that our, our forces can operate, that we have the infrastructure there uh, if needed to do the things that we need to do to defend North America. And I want to actually ask you, uh, General, about your uh, family history, because you really have a long history of public service. Um, can you start by telling us a little bit about your grandfather? Uh, yes, I will. Uh, my grandfather, uh, William Roper, uh, joined the Army uh, back in 1917 for World War I. He was a Buffalo soldier uh, in the 366th Infantry, the 92nd Infantry Division, and he deployed to France. 
And so I'm extremely proud of him. When he passed away, I was a second lieutenant. And so uh, Corporal William Roper, uh, literally thousands of soldiers like him, referred to as Buffalo soldiers, uh, deployed to a foreign country to fight for freedom that they didn't have here at home. And so when I think about the lineage, uh, I'm, I'm humbled. And so granddad was a Buffalo soldier. My father was a foot soldier. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. And so during the civil rights struggle in the 60s, he was one of those young people out there protesting nonviolently. And the Birmingham Police Department, as Dr. King said back then, was the most segregated uh, police department in the city of Birmingham, was the most segregated city in America. And so granddad was a Buffalo soldier. Dad was a civil rights foot soldier. And so I'm an Army Reserve soldier, which means I have a dual life. I've been on active duty for the last five years. But in the civilian world, I'm a police officer. And I was the, the police chief of the city of Birmingham for a decade. And so when I thought about uh, my family's history, our lineage, and the fact that the same police department that was so brutal uh, during the 60s, that a son of a, a civil rights foot soldier would become the chief of police of that police department. Uh, it really speaks to the opportunities uh, here in our country. And now I'm the, the first uh, African-American in the Armor Reserve's 114-year history to achieve the rank of Lieutenant General. So now my daughter is also a captain in the Army. And so that lineage of public service and defending our country uh, continues to live in the Roper, Roper family. So we're honored. Uh, yes, we have challenges out there, but this is the greatest country on the face of the earth. And I wonder, General, what advice you give to younger people about public service and about leadership? Well, I would say first, pu public service is something I think we're all called to do. So whether you're working full time as a first responder or even in the business community or, or, or in the cyber world, et cetera, there's still something you can do to, to support this great country of ours. Uh, it has given us so many opportunities and it's gonna take all of us. It's not just the work of government, but even at the community grassroots level, there's something you can do to improve the quality of life for your community. So I would say serve. Uh, Dr. King actually said in this being Black History Month, uh, everyone has the capacity to be great because everyone can serve. And so I would say serve. In regards to leadership, leadership is all about influence. It's about people, it's about relationships. It's not about metrics, it's not about platforms, but it's about people. So let's do everything we can to improve the lives of people from the community up to the national level. All right, General, so nice to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. Up next, as the military struggles to meet recruitment numbers, experts say there's a segment of the population services aren't tapping into. Stay with us. Recently, a panel of experts convened at the Naval Academy to discuss what the future of military recruitment could look like in the next decade. Among the panelists was Katherine Kuzminski. She's the director of the Military Veterans and Society Program 
at the Center for a New American Security. Kate, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So the number one thing that experts said at that panel was that diversity is key. So what does it look like now, especially with regard to women? Women represent a minority of the individuals currently serving in the military. Uh, in the Marine Corps, it's under 10% uh, and it's as high as about 25% in the Air Force. So why women? Why was that the focus of, of recruitment? Uh, part of it is the recruiting crisis that we're facing right now. We're not seeing the adequate numbers that we need in each of the services. Um, and thinking about 50, 51 percent of the population as a target audience is really important at this moment. Um, specifically thinking about some of the skill sets and assets that women bring to the table, we've seen an increase in the number of women who are college educated at the same time that we see a decrease in their male counterparts. So women are smarter than men, is that what you're saying? <laughs> women are pursuing higher education at higher rates than men, for sure. So, but what about the physical concerns? You know, people say they don't have the same upper body strength and they can't meet the same um, criteria as men do on the physical strength side. There's, uh, there's an argument to be made that the standards should remain the same um, and see who can actually meet those standards. So we're not comparing the average woman to the average man. We're comparing highly uh, athletic and uh, strong women who want to pursue a career in the military um, to uh, their, counter their male counterparts in the same exact, to the same exact standard. So one reason that women might not want to enlist is the, the prevalence of sexual harassment, sexual assault in the military. What do you need to do about that? I mean, is, isn't that stopping women from enlisting? It certainly um, doesn't send the right message, right? But we do see that both men and women have been uh, targets of sexual violence in the military. The Independent Review Commission that the Department of Defense held two summers ago really laid out a way forward for the services to um, make major strides in addressing sexual assault as a leadership issue within the command climate. All right, so let's talk about recommendations. What needs to be done to bring more women into the services? Um, first is highlighting the, the vast role of uh, the roles available in the military. So when we're looking at what we need, it's not just infantry um, and, and people at the pointy end of the spear. It's also the, the intelligence community. It is the cyber community. Um, it is the ability to deal in complex environments. Um, and that's a skill that, that women bring to the table as well. So it's not just recruitment, it's also retention and services have been struggling with retaining female service members. So what changes do you recommend there? Yeah, certainly some, some easy wins for the military services in the, the Department of Defense would be to extend childcare hours. We see that women in the military are more likely to be married to a man in the military than is true for men in the military. Um, many of their wives are civilians. And if both people have a uh, long work day and the, the, the childcare facilities don't open until after they both need to be at PT, that's an issue. Um, also thinking about maternity and paternity leave and different ways of managing careers. Um, it's particularly pronounced for women fighter pilots uh, who can't afford to leave the cockpit, and so they're forced with the decision of whether to stay in or, or leave. So what's the situation right now with maternity leave for female service members? Um, so recently, the department uh, and each of the military services expanded both maternity leave and uh, parental leave to 12 weeks. Uh, the Army just rolled out their strategy in the last two weeks, and they were the last service to do so. Um, and that, I do think, will have an impact on people's ability to stay in the service and still choose to have a family. 
So what are you what are you thinking as far as the trends go? Is is the the downturn in recruitment likely to continue? Do you think this year will be different from last year? I think we'll have struggles for the next year or two. Part of it's related to COVID. Uh, we didn't have military recruiters on college campuses or in high schools. Um, and part of it is changing, uh, shifting cultural norms within society. Not everyone considers military service as an option. Uh, we do see that the services are adapting. So for example, the army is rolling out, uh, returning the be all you can be uh, campaign in March. Uh, that's really highlighting what it is that military service looks like and how you can contribute to the community. And, and the low unemployment rate is also that's contributing right. to that because there's so many other options. That's right. All right, well, Kate, nice to talk to you. Thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. You can get the top stories plus exclusive content delivered straight to your inbox. Sign up for our newsletter on the homepage. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 and Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on WJLA 24-7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.